Welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. All right, this is episode 36, and we're returning to the Dardanelles, a.k.a. Gallipoli. As you know, the Dardanelles campaign is a big hitter for the Great War. A lot of lives were lost. It literally was hell at the Hellespont and Anzac Cove. I hope everyone enjoyed the last episode on Edith Cavell. Such a tragic yet amazing story. She set the example of true courage. And I mean, she really did set the example. She held herself up standing tall. And let's be honest, not a lot of people would have the courage she displayed going in front of a firing squad. Nobody really knows how they would react during a situation like that. You know, we just don't bring back people from the dead to interview them on their thoughts about facing a firing squad, now do we? Well, her faith in the Lord held her head up high, and I respect that. I also forgot to mention, there's a mountain in Alberta, Canada named after her. It's called Mount Edith Cavell, and it looks absolutely stunning. Her story really provides a good picture of the German presence in Belgium at that time, but things will change. The last episode I did on Gallipoli covered the April 25th landings for, I got to do this in my, I got to hold my hand up while I do this, Z, Y, X, W, V, and S Beach. And if you listen to that episode, you know it didn't go too good for the Allied landing parties. It's true, some were worse than others. A lot of men lost their lives that day, men on both sides. This was the largest naval amphibious assault up to this time. There were over 200 vessels involved, and the plan was to capture the Gallipoli Peninsula, drive the enemy back, then proceed through the Dardanelles Strait onto Constantinople, now known as Istanbul. Sir Ian Hamilton refused all requests for evacuation. Instead, he sent a false report back to London that the men achieved their objectives. Charles Bean was, was Australia's official war correspondent, and he was less fictitious with his writings than Hamilton. He wrote that the Anzacs taking the beachhead was a great achievement, but it came with a high price and lives lost. He emphasized on the amount of dead that was spread around the beach. Bean would later write about the commanders, including Hamilton, after the landings and basically called them brainless baboons and that they were the ultimate problem. I mean, imagine that. London is asking for a report. Well, give us a report, man. Come on. And Hamilton's just like, I'll peach you here, good chaps. Nothing but good things happening. And as silly as I'm being, as silly as that sounds, that's basically what he was saying while there's hundreds upon hundreds of dead bodies piled up. It, it really was a bunch of BS, but that's what happened. These Actually, you know what? Before I get into that, I almost forgot because I just looked at it. Folks, I just came from the dentist literally maybe an hour ago as I'm recording this. And I was like, what's going to get me in the mood? A better mood. Let me say that. And I think you know. Tell you what I'm drinking for this episode. Oh, it's such a oh. delirium nocturnum, the darker side of delirium. This is such a great beer. I love delirium beers. The first time we went, my wife and I went to uh, Europe together. 
We in France, we went to a delirium. I guess it's 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 basically a delirium beer bar. I forget. I think they call it Public House, and it was in Huen. Really cool delirium beer bar. Anyways, uh, we became big fans of delirium, and I'm not just saying because I went to the beer bar that this is really good beer. And I need about now because my friggin' mouth hurts because uh, my dentist seems to have a hand like Joe Frazier that just beats my ass. Anyways, let me get on. These next few episodes are going to cover the Dardanelles campaign post-April 25th landings through the ending of the campaign. And let me just say the blood has only started to spill. It's going to get rough for both sides. And of course... This has to be a multi-part series. There's just no way I can finish off Gallipoli in one episode. That's just too much to talk about. And I'm going to start this series with the Anzacs. For these remaining episodes, I'm going to be retelling a lot of quotes from the men on both sides. You know me by now. I love the quotes. I really do. This is an important piece of history, in my opinion. You're getting the stories straight from the mouths of the men who were there. They're fascinating stories, and I feel it's important we preserve them by retelling them. Let me rewind just a tad. Simply put, the Anzac mission for the April 25th landings was to land ashore under the cover of darkness, overcome the enemy, take control of the high ground, then push across the peninsula to seize Maltepe. And simply put again, that that didn't happen. The Anzacs were stopped in their tracks and were forced to dig in. Mustafa Kemal played a big part in this role. This is where he famously told his men, I don't order you to attack, I order you to die. Unfortunately, Gallipoli will result in thousands upon thousands of deaths. But the Anzacs weren't the only ones with problems. The Turks weren't riding the gravy train by no means. They too had experienced what hell really was like. Part of this was from the fierce stance the Anzacs took. They were hard-charging kick-ass soldiers. And part of their problem was because most of the Arab soldiers attached to the Turks were refusing to fight, which is never a good situation in war. And the other part was just the overall conditions of the fighting at night most of the time. Confusion was present with these soldiers too. This was rough terrain. After the landings on the 25th, they remained under constant machine gun and sniper fire, coming from the entrance of the valley known as Chessboard. Hamilton had warned them after the botched landings that the Allied forces would be holding the ground where they stood or until the next plan of attack. And it was advised they begin to dig in to fortify their positions. Dig, dig, dig. And that's exactly what they did. They dug trenches like their lives depended on it. The trenches were becoming deeper and more sophisticated. They were even digging communication trenches now. People said it was like a big maze. But let's think about that scenario. The survivors of the landings were now forced into hard hard labor. And by forced, I mean their lives really depended on it. They didn't exactly have much of a choice. Their supplies and provisions, such as bullets and beans, had to be brought in from ships, which would have to be brought in from a makeshift pier that was under constant artillery fire. 
Soldiers had to run these supplies to the trenches and then make their way back. Being a runner at this time wasn't exactly a cake job. By April 28th, the men from the 1st Australian Division were absolutely exhausted. Commanders knew if they didn't get some rest soon, and if an attack was launched on their positions, it could be catastrophic. Commanders were pleading for reinforcements. Hamilton agreed to have the 4th Battalion of Royal Marines brought up to hold the 1st Division lines while they got some much-needed rest and to regather themselves. These Marines made their way to the lines the night of the 28th. It was dark. It was raining. They were being yelled at by the men from all sides. And the trenches they took over were littered with the dead. This was their introduction to the frontline trenches. Welcome to hell, boys. And by the way, days were passing quick since the landing. Dead are spread out everywhere. There's the sun beating down on them. Then there's the rain. And there's rodents. I always talk about the dead just being left to rot away. And this is another example of it. And the men have to just deal with it for the time being. By the time the Royal Marines relieved the 1st Division, General von Saunders had already sent in reinforcements to the Turkish line. Lieutenant Colonel Mustafa Kemal's men were primed for an attack during the early morning hours of May 1st. The attack was launched, but the fighting power from the Marines was too tough for the Turkish advancing ranks. You're not just going to overrun the Royal Marines. These are bad boys. Boys, bad boys, what you gonna do when they come for you? And that's just right under the copyright infringement mark, so don't try coming after me. In all seriousness, these boys were tough. They weren't no saps that were gonna let anybody just run right over them. They were gonna fight with everything they had. A machine gunner from the Royal Marines described it, saying, At dawn, the Turks attacked in mass and the situation looked critical. My machine gun officer was killed. He got a bullet through the head. I borrowed a periscope from one of my subalterns to try and spot a machine gun that was worrying us considerably. As soon as I got in line with the top of the trench, a bullet smashed it out of my hands. Snipers are a menace. They seem to be everywhere and are very clever at concealing themselves. The sun and flies are terrible, and one cannot obtain water to quench the thirst. The dead Turks in front and our own fellows lying at the back of us are beginning to smell. The din was terrific. Shouting and blowing of bugles, and the whole place was lit up with fires that were raging at the scrub. During the attack, I caught about 30 of them in a bunch coming toward our gun position. I emptied a belt of ammunition into them at 60 yards range with good effect. Private Bertram Wilson, Chatham Battalion, Royal Marine Brigade. End quote. In response, the commander of the Anzac Corps, William Birdwood, ordered a night attack on Baby 700, which was to be carried out by the NZNA Division at 19.15 hours following a 15-minute naval bombardment. Now... 
if you're looking at a map of Anzac and you can Google Anzac map and several should populate. Um, I'm looking at one with contour lines, which I personally like to see because it shows the drastic changes in the terrain. But basically, if you start at Anzac Cove and go east, immediately the map should show Quinn's. German officers, trench, chessboard, and baby 700. And this is basically the entrance into a valley leading to Battleship Hill and then Chinook Bear. Anywho, baby 700 is a ridgetop at the valley's entrance. The problem with this attack for starters, and I'm sure it's gonna come as no shocker, the units weren't properly briefed. The men were crossing over each other. And when men are crossing over each other in the dark, while machine gunners are blasting off rounds, naturally, you're probably gonna get friendly fire. And this is what happened. And it continued on until they realized it and were able to correct the issue. All through the night, the Turks would attempt to move a line forward, but the Anzacs were able to make easy targets of them and stop the advance. So what was supposed to be an attack by the NZNA division turned into the men being bogged down, repelling Turkish assaults. The tide took a bad shift for the Allies the next morning when the Turks managed to get a machine gun into position at the German officer's trench. Again, if you look at a map, this is a perfect spot for a machine gun because it's on high ground that has eyes on the entrance to the valley, meaning it's overlooking the Allies lying on the ridge. Of course, this gun just starts to plow into them. The Turk behind the trigger starts bursting off rounds, burst after burst. Needless to say, men are getting ripped apart. A Royal Marine described it saying, Suddenly, a machine gun crackled away. This machine gun went along and killed every man on the ridge except an Australian and me. We were the only two left. The Australian said, The bastards can't kill me. They've had lots of tries. They can't kill me. I looked again. The machine gun started barking behind us. It was knocking the sand up and it covered every man. Every man, it came right along. I felt the bullet thud into the Aussie and he never spoke again. I felt as though I'd been hit by a donkey and I had a bullet through the right foot. When I saw those bullets coming along, and I knew that it would be the end of me if they came along far enough. They say your past comes up, but I can say truthfully that I hadn't got much past at 19, and all I thought was, am I going to live? That's all I thought. That's what struck me. Am I going to be lucky? Because I couldn't see how I could be with all these bullets coming along, and I waited for it. It was inevitable. Now, although this Marine was lucky he was only shot in the foot, he wasn't out of danger yet. He went on to say, I lay there and didn't know what to do. The Turks came and prodded various men with their bayonets. Fortunately, they didn't poke me, and I could hear them jabbering away, and then they moved away again. Well, I thought... I must do something. So I gave myself a push off and went bumpity bumpity right down to the bottom of the ravine over dead men, 
rifles, bush, all kinds of things. Private Harry Baker, Chatham Battalion, Royal Marine Brigade, end quote. That place where all those men were gunned down would be dubbed Dead Man's Ridge. And all those corpses on the ridge over the days would begin to turn black from the sun and begin the decomposition stages, and they would be left there for the remainder of the campaign. This attack was another clear indication that neither side was going to break through the other's lines. More trench digging commenced, and this became a battleground for close quarters. Men would hurl insults at the enemy, which could clearly be heard. It was rumored that the opposing side would just talk to each other in some instances. But regardless if they were just talking or not, nobody was safe. Again, men were being picked off left and right 24-7, and death didn't care what rank you were. If you made a mistake, it was going to take your life. Major General Sir William Bridges was killed on the 15th of May because he made a mistake. Well, he actually died on the 18th from the wounds suffered on the 15th to be exact. Bridges served with the British Army in South Africa from 1899 until 1900 when he was evacuated with enteric fever. Enteric fever is also known as typhoid fever. In 1909, he became Australia's first chief of the general staff and established Australia's first military college, the Royal Military College at Duntroon. And when Australia was called up for the war, he was assigned as the commander of the 1st Australian Division. A captain named Horace Viney was with a working party on the beach when he met Bridges coming up the gully, which the general was on his way to visit the 1st Light Horse Brigade headquarters in Monash Valley. Viney recalled, saying, To negotiate Monash Gully safely, one had to walk on alternate sides of it according to how the valley twisted and turned. Those who knew it could go up and down it comparatively safely by keeping under cover on one side until a twist in the goalie exposed that side to the Turkish fire. It was then necessary to dart across the goalie a distance of 10 to 20 yards and gain shelter of the opposite bank. The Turks had marked down the crossing place and had them covered by snipers and machine guns. Having been up and down Monash goalie several times, I had learned by painful experience just where the dangerous spots were. And after Viney had a brief discussion with Bridges and his party, he obviously felt obligated to warn them of the dangers in the goalie. He went on to say, I impressed on them that they must keep on the right-hand side of the goalie until they came to the ambulance collecting station and also that the only danger spot before they reached brigade headquarters was the five-yard dash across the goalie from the end of the barricade there. If they crossed that at a good speed, they would be quite safe. I had noticed that General Bridges was becoming less and less inclined to dash across the goalie at those places where it was necessary to do so. I think that he was of the opinion that I had exaggerated the danger. Captain Horace Viney, 3rd Light Horse Regiment, NZNA Division, end quote. Bridges reached the barricade to talk with the medical officers. After departing, he went to cross the goalie, but as he was crossing, he stopped, turned his head, and began to speak, and then he was dropped. A Turkish sniper seized the opportunity and nailed Bridges. 
It wasn't a headshot. The general was still alive. He was shot on the right thigh, but the bullet had severed major blood vessels. Miraculously, he survived a couple days after being hauled off. He died on a hospital ship at the age of 54 on the 18th of May. The Reaper on the battlefield didn't discriminate against any age or rank. It would take anybody who was willing to poke their head out. The battlefield became a non-stop madhouse. Head-rattling explosions going off all over the place. Bullets hissing overhead. Gunfire everywhere. It was so bad that the men actually started to distinguish the different sounds war produced. The Anzacs needed something big if they were going to make any progress. They needed heavy artillery. One happened to be available. A 6-inch howitzer fixed to the HMS Prince George. The heavy gun was brought ashore and attached to the New, New Zealanders on the left of Anzac with a detachment of Royal Marines. Regimental Sergeant Major David Hepburn had a difficult task. He later wrote, We had to fire over two ridges, each 400 feet high, at a target only 1,300 yards away. We couldn't see the target. We had the sea at our backs, and that was the only direction in which we did not fire. One afternoon, we received a message, Engage hostile heavy gun. Out came the map, and from the map we laid our gun. It pointed bang over our own headquarters. It is ticklish work when the shells just slither over the crest and when our target is only 30 to 100 yards from our own trenches. I never did get over the idea of firing so close to our own men. End quote. The much-needed reinforcement the Anzacs needed arrived wasn't producing the type of damage they wished for. It wasn't a game changer. What did arrive on the 16th of May and was able to help the fight was the 2nd Division reinforcements for the Turks. This much-needed manpower gave the Turkish army a 2-to-1 advantage. The Turkish commanders couldn't hold back the urge to rush these men into the Anzac line. They planned an attack on the 19th of May. The 5th, 16th, and 19th Divisions were to charge right through the center line of what was believed to be a vulnerable Anzac position. They were then to sweep them back out to sea. Problem was, the Anzacs knew this attack was coming. Think about it. This area isn't that big. And again, the two opposing lines were not far off from each other. Moving three divisions into position, readying themselves for an attack is like trying to hide an elephant in a conference room. The Anzac commanders said, let's address this elephant in the room. And so they did. By now, they knew an attack of this size usually kicks off with some fireworks. On the 18th of May, the Turks began a long and slow artillery barrage that started at 1700 hours. The warning went out and the Anzacs readied themselves. A corporal described it, saying, A deep brooding silence reigned, broken only at intervals by the faintest rattle of accoutrements or a quietly muttered word. The shadowy outline of the head and shoulders of one's neighbor intensified the unre unreality of the scene, due to the lines of his body being lost in the darkness of the narrow trench 
which the faint cold light of the morning stars failed to penetrate. Word passed from mouth to mouth, uttered quietly as though they were, we were afraid to speak, that the outpost had come in and that Jacko was on the move. One experienced a slight involuntary shiver that might have been due to the chill morning air, a tingling, creeping cessation at the base of the skull, which passed down the spine, and thoughts which had moved sluggishly now took on a racing pace. Would the impending attack succeed? Would bayonet work be necessary? One tried to picture what was going on out there, seeing in the mind's eye figures creeping, creeping stealthily in the vain hope of catching us unprepared. Corporal Thomas McNamara, 11th Western Australian Battalion, 1st Division, AIF. End quote. These first town accounts are absolutely amazing. Again, you're getting the story straight from the soldier's mouth. Here's a few more quotes that will paint the picture of the scene. This is from a private who'd recently returned to his unit after being injured. He was digging with another private as the action unfolded. I looked over the top of the trench and to my amazement saw a Turk running across the skyline, moving towards our trenches and was quickly followed by others. Almost before I could warn Chapman, all hell seemed to break loose from the Australian trenches. Chapman and I dived through the sap to get through to our mates. All hell had been let loose, but that is putting it mildly. We were waist high above the parapet, pumping 10 rounds rapid into him as quickly as we could fire and reload. Above all the hellish din, one could hear their trumpets blowing. Shouts from their officers no doubt exhorting them all on the shrill cries of, Allah, Allah. They got Allah, all right. Private Charles Duke, 4th New South Wales Battalion, 1st Division, AIF. End quote. If the Turks had gained a little bit of the surprise element, the story might be different. But instead, along Monash Valley, the Anzacs met the Turks with a storm of lead. Machine guns were hitting every inch of the ground it could, along with artillery shells crashing down forward their line. I mean, the Turks really did run into a wall of lead and shrapnel. But because of the sheer number and size of the attacking force, at some locations they were able to capture some trench line, but it was quickly taken back. A famous Australian soldier reported, A great battle at 3 a.m., Turks captured large portion of our trench. D Company called into the front line. Lieutenant Hamilton shot dead. I led a section of men and recaptured the trench. I bayoneted two Turks, shot five, took three prisoners, and cleared the whole trench. I held the trench alone for 15 minutes against a heavy attack. Lance Corporal Albert Jacka, 14th Victoria Battalion, NZNA Division. End quote. Corporal Jacka was awarded the first Australian VC of the war for his actions. It, it's amazing the difference in styles of writing or versions of soldiers telling their story. Some are in a way poetic sounding, you know, the Hemingways or the Alan Seegers of telling their versions. You can tell they're writers and some are just straight to the point. Just the facts, the grunts, and I do appreciate them all. By 0500, 
it was clear the Turks had failed their objective. And although this may have been a quick battle, by no means was it small in size. The Turkish estimated their casualties for this battle around 10,000. The Anzacs had the clear upper hand by repelling the attacks. They fired an estimated 950,000 small arms rounds. That's rifle bullets and handgun bullets for those that, that don't know the term small arms. They also fired an estimated 1,400 artillery shells. That's a massive amount of ammo spent for that short period of time, and it really tells you how well they could defend themselves. In fact, prior to this, the Turkish believed parts of the Anzac lines were weak, and it should be easy for them to assault through. But now, realizing they couldn't just assault these positions with men that were ready for an attack with bolt-action rifles, artillery, and machine guns, in other words, their defense was too much for them to handle. This was a learning lesson for the Turks. Instead of a general assault, which they will never do for the remainder of the campaign, instead, they will improve their tactical positions, then concentrate on assaults through a more powerful position. Another thing was learned through this battle on both sides, and that was the dead. Mm-hmm. They couldn't keep living with the dead piling up and rotting. It was becoming too much for both sides. We're talking thousands of dead piling up. The sun beating down on the dead was getting horrific. After both sides negotiated a temporary armistice, the soldiers on both sides began to clear no man's land of the dead. This was a complex negotiation. Each side was trying to kill each other off, but each side couldn't take it anymore. A line was marked out with wooden sticks and white rags along the middle of no man's land. The Turks would be on one side burying all the dead and the Anzacs responsible for the other half. At 0730 hours on the 24th of May, the men crossed over the wire into no man's land and began the dreaded work of dealing with the corpses. On the Anzac side, each man was given two packets of cigarettes one to smoke, and the other for the Turk closest to them on the other side. A senior New Zealand medical officer later described it, saying, The Turkish dead lay so thick that it was almost impossible to pass without treading on their bodies. The stench was awful. The Turkish doctor gave me some piece of wool on which he poured some scent and asked me to put them into my nostrils. I was glad to do so. The awful destructive power of high explosives was very evident. Huge holes surrounded with circles of corpses blown to pieces. They were scattered about the area over which we walked. Everywhere lay the dead, swollen, black, and hideous, and over all the nauseating stench that made one feel desperately sick. As we moved along the plateau, the trenches became closer and closer together. In one place, I calculated the distance between the Turks and ours was only 17 feet. I made this calculation from the fact that four Turks lay head to heel. The front Turk had his hand actually on one side of our trench. The back one had his feet touching his own trench. He had been killed as he leapt over the trench wall. Lieutenant Colonel Percy Fenwick, Headquarters NZNA Division. End quote. 
And this is just the beginning. Think how bad the situation must have been for them to have called a timeout to deal with all the dead. The smell alone is one reason, but think of the gruesome image of those bodies rotting after a grotesque kill. Men without heads. Men with half a head. Men with holes in their head. And a blowback out the other side. Men, dead men, just staring into the abyss. Missing limbs. A rotting leg here. A rotting arm there. Twisted bodies. Open stomachs with spilled guts. The images must have haunted the survivors of the war for the remainder of their lives. I mean, it was like a gory horror film. And as much as each side hated each other while the battles were taking place, this is natural when somebody's trying to kill you, of course. But during a time like this, a temporary armistice, the soldiers related to each other. Even if they couldn't understand the other's language, they understood what they were going through. One Anzac soldier wrote, We stood together some 12 feet apart, quite friendly, exchanging coins and other articles, and in some cases were able to communicate. A Turk gave me a beautiful Sultan Guard belt buckle made of brass with a silver star and crescent embossed with a Sultan scroll in Arabic. All I had to give him in exchange were a few coins. Corporal Charles Livingstone, 2nd Light Horse Brigade, AIF. Each side carried the other side's dead back over to their line. They even handed back rifles, but not before removing the bolts. And by 1800 hours, the armistice was over, and almost immediately, both sides opened fire on each other again. Once again, they were enemies. When foreign soldiers come together today, it's sort of this unwritten rule to exchange items with other soldiers. Coins, shirts, hats, berets, knives, and other stuff. This has become sort of a, a ritual, I guess. I've exchanged several things with foreign soldiers, but one of the most meaningful things I still have is an official German Falschmäger beret. Uh, we always had extra berets, so I exchanged my beret for his, and I, I still think this is pretty cool today. In fact, I was looking for a paper a few weeks back and seeing the beret. It brought back some real good memories. I have an idea. Uh, if you'd like to, send me an email or comment on Instagram or Facebook after you've heard this episode if you've ever exchanged goods in the military with a foreign soldier. And if it's appropriate, of course, and I have to say that, I'll mention, mention it in an upcoming episode. I think that'd be pretty cool. Now, soldiers weren't the only ones doing battle at Gallipoli. Remember, there's still a navy along the peninsula ready to do battle. But the Germans are going to disrupt things. They're going to be a thorn in the British side. Actually, more than a thorn, the Germans are going to do some damage. I haven't been drinking a lot of beer. I just needed something cold and refreshing. Anywho. Um, okay, where was I? I just lost my train of thought. Got it. Back on track. Captain Otto von Hersing, captain of the U-21, had departed Germany on the 25th of April and arrived to the Dardanelles in the early morning hours on the 25th of May. 
During U-21's voyage, the sub was being tracked by British admirals, and one of the first decisions they made was to get the Queen Elizabeth returned home and the pre-dreadnoughts pulled to safe positions while supporting the land operations with naval gunfire. Anzac Cove was reduced to just one pre-dreadnought, as crazy as that sounds. But the threat from submarines was real, and it was taken serious. In fact, any sailors on board these ships, if they weren't actually working hands below deck, they were kept above to reduce the casualty rate in case they were struck by a torpedo. When the U-21 first arrived, it was positioned at Hellas, and it went a little trigger-happy and immediately started firing on ships. But its early attacks were thwarted by a combination of alert destroyers and evasive maneuvering. That morning, von Hersing repositioned the sub at Anzac Cove, searching for easier prey. The HMS Triumph came into sight. Von Hersing later wrote, saying, We dived to 70 feet and headed towards the monster, passing far below the lines of patrol craft. Their propellers, as they ran above us, sounded a steady hum. For four and a half hours after I caught sight of the ship, I maneuvered the U-21 for a torpedo shot, moving here and there and showing the periscope on the smooth surface of the sea for only the briefest moments. In the conning tower, my watch officer and I stood with bated breath. We were groping toward a deadly position, deadly for the magnificent giant of war on the surface above. Out, periscope! HMS Triumph stood in formidable majesty, broadside to us, and only 300 yards away. Torpedo, fire! My heart gave a great leap as I called the command, and now, one of those fearfully still, eventless moments, suspense and eagerness held me in an iron grip. Heedless of all the else, I left the periscope out. There, and I saw the telltale streak of white foam darting through the water. It headed swiftly away from the point where we lay and headed straight. Yes, straight and true. Captain Otto von Hersing, end quote. Trowlers and destroyers rushed to the Triumph to rescue the crew. And as a result to the quick, quick response, the Triumph only lost over 70 enlisted and three officers. I've read 73 enlisted, and I've also read 75. I don't know which one is correct, so I'm just saying over 70 to play it safe. The ship remained upside down for about 30 minutes before sinking to the bottom. Meanwhile, the U-21 was trying to escape and evade the British destroyers, who was making chase for the sub. Von Hersing put his crew in a dangerous position, being spotted all because he watched through the periscope too long. He was so amazed by the carnage the torpedo had created, he didn't immediately realize the U-21 had been spotted. He had only one way out, and that was to dive and head straight for the Triumph. And that's exactly what he did. Under pressure, Von Hersing realized this was his only way out, and it worked. He went right under the Triumph and could hear the roar of the propellers from the destroyers searching about. Hersing and the crew barely escaped death. As the summer went on for, for the Anzacs, their defensive trenches became refined. 
They had more communication trenches. They had underground medical stations along with living areas. They were also introduced to a new type of warfare that was introduced already on the Western Front, mining operations. Soon, both sides were at it, detonating mines and then engaging in vicious battles, often resulting in hand-to-hand combat. Of course, the Turks couldn't resist testing out the defensive capabilities of the Anzac from time to time. The addition of the 18th Regiment to Mustafa Kemal's 19th Division gave him the opportunity to test this out on the 29th of June along Russell's Top. The Anzacs again knew the attack was coming and were prepared when the Turks came rushing across in the cover of darkness at 015 hours on the 30th of June. And of course, this ended up adding to the slaughterhouse as the 8th Light Horse gunned them down. And these light horse soldiers, which should have been cavalry, were quickly turned into light infantry once the men hit the shores after the landing. Most of the horses were also gunned down on the shore, and the Aussies realized having horses in this situation really served no purpose. I'm pretty sure they ended up eating a lot of the dead horses, so in a sick sort of way, they did serve a purpose. But these men from the 8th made quick work of the Turks, leaving over 250 dead piled up along a narrow strip of no man's land. As the fighting went on through the summer, the Anzac's mission became clear. Hold your ground. That was basically it. Hold your ground. The original objective from the 25th of April to assault the enemy and capture Maltepe and then to regroup and join the British and French in the attack on Khalid Bear was no longer possible at this point. Instead, what the Anzacs and the Turks had learned from each other up to this point was that they weren't going to break through the other's lines so easily. In fact, it had been impossible up to this point. And they learned that both could only stand the stench of death and decaying bodies up to a certain point. Other than that, it was hold your ground for both sides. As simple and stupid as that sounds, that was Hamilton's plan for the Anzacs up through the summer. And that's my dumbed down version how the Anzacs and Turks spent their time together after the landing up through the summer. It doesn't sound like it was a summer vacation after all. On the next episode, I'm going down to Hellas to see how the British and the French spent their time after the landings. The return to the Dardanelles slash post-Gallipoli landings is going to take a few episodes to get through. I would like to give a special warm thank you to all the listeners for your continued support. This podcast would be nothing but me talking into dead space if there were no listeners. I really do appreciate each and every one of you. Look, this is a crazy world, folks. These are crazy times. There's a lot of crazy things happening all over the globe. A lot of people are getting hit hard with floods or have already been hit hard. I've seen Belgium, Germany, Netherlands, Turkey, China, and more the last time I looked on the news. And it looked like they got hit hard. It's just just a terrible situation. Very crazy situation. So please try and stay safe and stay alert. This episode's 
World War One recommendation. Actually, you know, I really wish the Nurse Edith Cavell movie was better quality. It's such a shame. I really would have liked to recommend that. Instead, I'm going to recommend a classic book, a great read for great war fans. It's called The Price of Glory by Alistair Horn. Since 1916 is approaching and I am getting antsy about it because it's the reason I got hooked on the Western Front and the Great War. And it's mainly because of Verdun. Verdun. Yes, folks, we're approaching Verdun on the podcast soon. The book really paints a grim picture of what it was like for soldiers there. So if you want to grab yourself a copy of that, please do. Well, all right, folks, that's going to be it for this episode. Until the next one, take care, everyone. <laughs>